When was that the last time you were amazed? And I don't mean amused, but truly amazed where something arrested your attention and demanded appreciation. We're often amazed by creation. When you stand at the peak of a tall mountain or behold a colorful sunset, look up at the stars, you are meant to feel a sense of wonder. We're also amazed at what mankind is able to create, from skyscrapers to race cars, computers to AI. The ancient pyramids are still amazing, but today with technology, it's starting to boggle the mind. We're now able to launch people and payloads into space, and the rockets come back down and land themselves to be used again. There's plenty of amazement to be found in what man has accomplished. But whatever amazes you from creation to the works of man's hands, it all ultimately points back to the same thing, the glory of God. God is behind it all. The created universe is the work of his hands. When you look at the scope of creation, just the ridiculous amount of stars there are, look at the detail of creation and just the complexity of a single strand of DNA, everything we see points to the glory of the creator. And truly, the heavens are telling of the glory of God. But even man's creations reflect God's image. We're made in his image. The only reason we are able to create anything is because he has endowed us with a mind, ability, creativity, and so forth. Everything we accomplish is a faint but real reflection of God's majesty. So therefore, whatever you witness that amazes you, you should give God the glory. Let all amazement you experience be redirected to him alone. Just like Psalm 40 verse 5 declares, Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done. There is none to compare with you. Nothing compares to the glory of God. No one compares to God. None, no one else is worth our amazement. No one except Jesus. And that is not a trite statement. That is not a contradictory statement. Scripture is very clear that only, there's only one God, and he is due all of your amazement and all glory. None compare to him. But Scripture is equally clear that Jesus is also due all your amazement and glory, and he does compare to God. He is equal worth. That is not blasphemous or contradictory because of who Jesus is, namely God the Son. We learn, for example, in Colossians 1.15 that that just Jesus is the image of the invisible God, and by him all things were created. We learn in Philippians 2.5 that he existed in the form of God. We learn in Hebrews 1.3 that this Jesus is the exact representation of his nature. He's the radiance of God's glory. That is pretty amazing, and scripture frequently directs us to be amazed at Jesus. That is appropriate, though, for he is God. The one God is triune, and Scripture often focuses our vision on the Son, the one who became incarnate, took on flesh to be our mediator. And so it is only right for you to be as amazed in Jesus as you are in God. Much of the Bible was written to help us consider Jesus. He came to further reveal the glory of God to us. You look up at the heavens, you can see much of the glory of God, but you see even more in Christ. Jesus came and appeared as a man, lived as a man, died as a man, like like any other in one sense. But his birth, life, and death were not like any other, because he was not just a man. He was the God-man. So his birth, life, and death all carried much greater significance. And it's critical to see Jesus for who he really is if you are to know him as Lord and Savior. And this Jesus beckons us to follow him unto salvation, but you can only do that if you know him. This is why the New Testament, and especially the four Gospels, labor to show us the true identity of Jesus. He was not just a man. He was not even just a miracle worker. He was the divine Messiah. And the veil of his humanity gets pulled back ever so slightly in our passage for this morning. As we consider this Jesus, we find in him and in his image the glory of God. That should lead us to uh, an amazement, a wonder, worship. 
and should convince us he's worthy of our lives. He's worth following. All that and more comes out of our text. This is Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to follow along. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 through 27. And this is a familiar passage. This is Jesus stilling the storm at sea. And talk about amazing. This has captured the wonder of believers ever since. As much as man has accomplished, he still has very little power over weather. Man is at the mercy of the forces of nature daily. But not Jesus. All creation is at his mercy. He speaks and creation obeys. Everything responds when he commands. Here in chapters 8 and 9, we're going through Matthew verse by verse. We, we get now an account of the works of Jesus. Specifically, this is a thematic record of Christ's miracles in these two chapters. We have nine miracles total and three groups of three. We finished up the first three. These were miracles of healing, showing us Christ's total authority over sickness. Now, in our passage, we move into the fourth of these miracles. And here we witness Christ's authority over creation itself. I mean, to command disease is amazing, but... As we witness him command creation at large, it feels like an order of magnitude more amazing. Other biblical figures worked wonders and affected nature. Moses parted the Red Sea. Elijah withheld rain for three years. But you know, that's not quite accurate, right? Because God parted the Red Sea. And God withheld rain for three years. These prophets didn't didn't do anything. They prayed. God answered. But There's no confusion in scripture that God is due all the amazement for their works. But it is different with Jesus because he's not just another Moses or Elijah. One greater than Moses or Elijah is here. And he works wonders with the same inherent authority as God himself. Jesus doesn't even need to pray. He just speaks and creation listens. Let's read about it here. Matthew 8. 23 through 27, you can listen along. Verse 23 says that when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. But Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, "Why, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, what kind of a man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? The punchline of this passage is quite evident by the way it ends with this rhetorical question of the disciples sitting in amazement wondering, who is this? What kind of a man is this? This passage is all about the true identity of Jesus. We want to walk through it now, consider it further, that we too might discover who he is and wonder in his identity. Now, by way of outline, I'm going to do something I rarely do, which is to steal and import the same outline I used when I preached this parallel passage in Mark's gospel. It's almost nine years ago exactly when I looked it up. You know, we're going through Matthew's gospel. I preached through Mark before. I never rely on my old Mark sermons. I, I need to start afresh with the text each time and start from scratch. It's coming from a different biblical writer anyway. But occasionally I'll check to see how I, I outlined a parallel passage. And I looked up this in Mark's gospel. And I'm like, hey, you know, that's actually pretty good. I like that. <laughs> and it's not stealing if it's from yourself, right? So anyway, we're just going to walk through this outline now. A little descriptive outline, but the goal is just to sit in wonder and amazement of the one it's all about, which is Christ and his identity. And so we'll begin first with this, number one, a fateful trip in verse 23. A fateful trip, verse 23 says, when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. Verse 23 is really picking up from verse 18. It says, now when, his, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, He gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Here we see Jesus being surrounded by a crowd. Crowds were often enticed by his healing. They stuck around for his teaching. But now it's time to leave. 
sometimes to seek rest, sometimes to minister to the twelve, sometimes to just find other people. Jesus would frequently leave the crowd behind. This is one occasion. It's time to depart to the other side of the sea. This is talking about the Sea of Galilee. Jesus and his disciples are on the western shore. They want to go over to the eastern shore. The Sea of Galilee is pear-shaped, 13 miles long, north to south, 8 miles wide, kind of in the middle. And from where Jesus was crossing, they still had about a four-mile journey over water to get to the other side, which is it's not a small voyage back then with oars. One time I, I kayaked a two-mile leg of Lake Almanor, and on one side of the shore, like the other side does not look that far away. But when you get out in the water, it looks can be deceiving on the lake. Now, speaking of, the Sea of Galilee was a lake, sometimes called the Sea of Tiberias, sometimes called Lake of Gennesaret. The water was said to be clear and sweet and blue. In the springtime, that the surrounding hillside were green, the lake was described as a sapphire in a setting of emerald. It contained many varieties of fish in great numbers. It supported a large fishing industry. And as you know, many of Christ's disciples were like part of that fishing industry. Because of that, it's, it's pretty safe to say that this boat in verse 23, which is referred to as the boat, most likely belonged to one of those disciples. It's being commandeered now for ministry purposes. I'm sure you got a tax write-off. <laughs> but to give you a sense of what this boat may have looked like, back in 1986, a ship was found uh, pretty well preserved at the bottom of the Sea of Galilee from this era. And it was 26 feet long, seven and a half feet wide, maybe about five feet tall. It's pretty much the dimensions of a large aluminum fishing boat today. It was powered by a couple of oars, or it could take a mast, had a steering rudder, and that was about it. It could fit 10, 15 people max. And so you can imagine Jesus and his disciples getting into one such boat. Verse 23 says his disciples followed him. The crowd was staying behind, but his closest disciples were along for this ride and it would be a fateful trip, as we will see. But next we encounter, secondly, a, a fierce tempest. A fierce tempest in verse 24. You know a storm is coming. Verse 24, right away says, And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves. Many of Christ's disciples were skilled fishermen, so if they saw a huge storm coming, they would not have set out to cross the lake and risk all their lives on a dangerous journey if this was a storm they could see coming. Now, this was instead a sudden storm, and that's something the Sea of Galilee is known for. The Sea of Galilee's unique geography contributed to these very sudden squalls, unlike most other lakes. Lake Erie, for example, it's 50 times the size of the Sea of Galilee, but it'll see waves of like six feet at most. But Galilee was quite different. The surface of the Sea of Galilee sits about 700 feet below sea level. And it's covered by very warm air. A bit over 30 miles to the north is Mount Hermon, which rises 9,200 feet above sea level. So like a 10,000 foot differential. Then you have northerly winds that just blows all that cold air south. And as it approaches Galilee, it's funneled through gorges and valleys. The mountains on the east and west of the lake rise about 2,000 feet. The air has nowhere to go. And so finally, you have this fast-moving cold air. It crashes into the warm air above the lake, and just a, a storm, a tempest emerges, breaks out. It just starts violently whipping the water into a frenzy. The lake starts to churn. And this can happen as, just as fast as the winds start. The word for storm here in the Greek is seismos, which, from which we get our word seismic. It just means to shake. This was a, a violent shaking of the lake. It's normally translated as an earthquake, but when it's used over water, we'd call it like a, a tempest, a squall, a storm. It's like someone was just shaking the whole lake around, just kicking up these huge waves. The disciples were no strangers to storms. Verse 24, though, this says this was a great storm. It's not just a storm. This was a great storm. The other gospel writers describe it variously. Luke says a fierce gale of wind descended upon them and, be, and they began to be swamped. Mark adds that the waves were breaking over the boat and the boat was filling up. 
And of course, Matthew here tells us, he says the boat was being covered by the waves. And that word for covered speaks of being enveloped or wrapped by the waves. Just so you know, the amplitude of the waves was higher than the boat. Now, as the boat sank into a trough between the waves, it, it would have you know, disappeared from view. We, we can imagine as the intensity of the wind and the waves just kept increasing, I, I imagine the panic level of the disciples kept increasing. I mean, they, they could handle a storm, but was this like the big one? Was this going to sink them? There, however, was one person in the boat who was not panicked at all during the storm because he was asleep. And so we see number three, a fatigued teacher. A fatigued teacher, verse 24 again. The contrast, behold, there arose a great storm on the sea. So the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And with a storm of this magnitude, it's pretty amazing that anyone could sleep through it. I think just goes to show you how truly exhausted Jesus was. I can testify that, you know, teaching and preaching is strangely tiring in a way you wouldn't expect, but it can be tiring. Who knows how tiring a healing ministry would have been? Jesus was just at the demand of the crowd's constant energy. When he was with the crowds, he was just on for a long period of time and it had to have been exhausting. It's possible the main reason he wanted to cross the sea was just to get some rest on the boat, find a little time away. In his itinerant ministry life, Jesus would sleep kind of wherever he could, even if his pillow was the ballast bag, the uncomfortable ballast bag on the stern of the ship. We know Jesus was super exhausted, given the fact that he remains asleep even during the storm. In these ancient boats, if this really was one of those fishing vessels, there's no cabin. He's sitting on the stern, a little bench on the stern. He's being tossed to and fro with each wave. The other Gospels make clear that waves are crashing over the boat, which means he's drenched. But he's still asleep. We have a phrase for this in English. It's, we call it dead tired. It makes us, us think of one of our kids on a vacation day at the end. Like When they fall asleep, you cannot wake them up. They're, they're gone. Already, though, that you read this account of Jesus asleep in a storm at sea, and it gives you echoes of Jonah. Because the same thing happened to Jonah. Just listen to Jonah 1, 4, 4 and 5. You likely know the account of Jonah. It says, The Lord hurled a great wind on the sea, and there was a great storm on the sea, so that the ship was about to break up. Then the sailors became afraid, and every man cried to his God. But it says, But Jonah had gone below into the hold of the ship, laying down and fallen asleep. A little different, bigger boat on the Mediterranean, but similar circumstances, Jonah asleep during a storm at sea. That storm was sent by God to test Jonah and wake him from his spiritual stupor. He was sleeping for all the wrong reasons. If you know anything about the book of Jonah, he had come at this point to a settled disobedience to God's call. And he was hardened, and he wanted to die. It's very clear in Jonah 4 where he says several times to God, he says, take my life. Death is better to me than life. And in Jonah 1, instead of repenting when the storm comes, he just tells the sailors, yeah, it's because of me. Just throw me overboard. He does not know he's going to be rescued. He thinks he's going to die. Jonah is asleep in the storm because he didn't care if he died. And that's a reflection of his disobedience to God's call. Jesus is asleep in the boat for the opposite reason. Jesus asleep in the storm is a reflection of his obedience to God's call. He knows he can't die until the appointed hour. He came to do his father's work. That work was to die and make atonement for sins on the cross. He will be obedient to that work and nothing can harm him until that day. We see Jesus and his life threatened many times. We never see him panicking or or freaking out. He he knew it wasn't his time. And so he has a peace, a stillness to him. He can sleep. You can't say the same thing about the other disciples, though, that the contrast continues from the storm to Jesus, from Jesus back to the disciples. They had a different response. We can call this, number four, a frantic troop. 
a frantic troop. Verse 25, it says, And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. Here's when the disciples start to truly panic. At least four of them were experienced sailors. They knew what they were doing. They knew how to navigate a storm. I'm sure they're, they're bailing water. But it became evident at some point this was a losing battle. They're taking on more than they can bail out. This, this seems like the big one. The waves are just too high. At some point, you know, panic sets in. I'm sure many of you have been on a plane when turbulence strikes. And it can be a nerve-wracking experience. You're sitting there just kind of violently shaking. But hopefully you tell yourself, like, it's just turbulence. It'll be over soon. It's nervous, but it'd be a little different if you're on a plane. You hear a loud explosion. The nose tilts down, and you start rapidly descending. And then you know, like, this is not turbulence. This is a little different. And if that happened, you would not be nervous. You would probably start to panic. And that is the level of fear the disciples were experiencing here. They, they think they're about to die. They're frantic. In Greek, what they say to Jesus is short, terse, and panic. It's literally just three words in the Greek. It's save, Lord, we're perishing, which is just one word. They don't have life jackets. If they sink, that boat goes down. I mean, they have no chance. Even if they know how to swim, they have no chance. And so knowing they're doomed... They realize this is it, knowing they can't save themselves. In what appears to be a last resort, they finally appeal to Jesus. Jesus was, at this point, their last hope, their only hope. Maybe he can do something. In Mark's gospel, we can really sense their exasperation. They say, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? I don't think they meant to rebuke Jesus, but they're just desperate. The fact that they're turning to Jesus in their desperation expresses some faith. They believe he can do something. But in another sense, their immense fear has put flight to their faith. They're leaving behind only panic. The storm outside the boat is now being mirrored in their souls. Not so for Jesus. Again, as his body was asleep, so his soul was peaceful, tranquil, quiet. And theirs could be too. Theirs should be. If only they had greater faith. And that is part of what God was trying to draw out through this episode. We can see that reflected here in number five, a faith trial. A faith trial, verse 26. It says that he said to them, why are you afraid? You men of little faith. So Jesus is finally awoken from his slumber And he quickly assesses the situation. I mean, if you were asleep on that plane, which is going down, and someone woke you up next to you, as quickly as you realize what would happen, what's going on, you would probably start to panic and and freak out a little bit, I'm sure. But not Jesus. He wakes up and he appears entirely unconcerned about the storm. He's way more concerned about the state of his disciples in the boat. And so he asks them a question. Pays no attention to the storm. He just asks them, why are you afraid? This is not the main Greek word for fear, but rather this word means timid or cowardly. It was used in the, the Greek version of the Old Testament to speak of those whose hearts melted before battle, those who lost all courage. It's a word for courage. Now, at first thought, though, it, it kind of seems like a ridiculous question, like, why are you afraid? I mean, the, They're in the middle of a storm at sea that's about to kill them. They're far from shore. They're taken on water. Like one more big wave, they're all going to drown. It's like, what do you mean, why are you afraid? Like, this is why they're afraid. But upon further review, his, his is a legitimate question, just given who was in the boat with them. And this is what Jesus is getting at. His disciples have half the equation right, but they haven't fully connected the dots Look, for one, they just called him Lord. Lord, save us. That's good. That's right. But do they, do they really know what that means? And also, as they're about to die, we don't see them praying to God, but appealing to Jesus to save them. That means they believe Jesus could do something about their situation. They've witnessed all of his miracles. Perhaps 
he could help them. That, likewise, is good. So, like, what we wonder, like, what's lacking in their response? What are they not seeing here that Jesus says, you men of little faith? It's not that they failed to see Jesus as their hope or that they failed to see him as powerful. It's that they failed to see the fullness of Christ's identity because if they really knew who was in the boat with them, they would have no reason to be afraid. And so Jesus says, you men of little faith. Little faith is one word in the Greek. It's literally the word for little crammed together with the word for faith. It's used five times in the Gospels, each time by Jesus with reference to his own disciples. They had real faith. Their faith was real. It was genuine, but it was little. It was still small. It was in sapling form. Their faith needed to grow. Much of what he's doing with them throughout the Gospels is to test, grow, refine their faith. They're going to need much stronger faith if they're to lead his church when he's gone. That is to come. But understand, every time Jesus says this, when he tells him, you of little faith, what he really means is, you of little faith in me. He is the object of faith. And that's the real problem. Their faith in him is real, but it's just not strong enough. And that is because they have of yet failed to fully recognize his identity. They've seen his, his words, his works, his wonders. They believe Jesus is great, but could he be more? Could he be something more? He was. If only they had eyes to see that Colossians 1.15, like the creator of the universe was in the boat with them. Though veiled in humanity, Jesus was God. This is one of the great revelations of the Gospels. Peter has not yet confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. But if they had known that, they would have realized like there's no safer place on the planet in that moment than in that boat. Because God the Father would let no harm befall God the Son before his scheduled arrival at the cross. And so overall then, their, their faith in Jesus needed to go deeper, just beyond the surface, beyond the veil of his humanity, And so with this question, Jesus is making them stop in the midst of their fear and consider him. That's something we'll return to. We'll come back to this point shortly. But let's go ahead and finish this text first because after Jesus speaks to his disciples, well, then he does speak to the storm. And this results in number six, a fast tranquility. A fast tranquility. Verse 26, he said to them, why are you afraid, you men of little faith? And then it says, then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. So after his rhetorical rebuke of the disciples, Jesus non-rhetorically rebukes the storm. He's getting up from his slumber. What does he do? It says he rebukes the wind and the sea. To rebuke is an authoritative admonishment. He's talking to the wind and the waves. Mark adds that Jesus says, hush, be still. Sometimes when we get desperate, we talk to objects. Like maybe it's raining right before your wedding, and you might, in frustration, it's like, rain, stop. Or you're golfing, and you hit a great shot. It looks like it's close to going in. You might say to the ball, like, get in the hole. Doesn't seem to work, though, but... When we speak to creation, nothing happens. But when Jesus speaks with authority, everything obeys. So he rebukes the winds and the sea, the wind being the source of the tempest, the waves being the real threat to them. That's what's going to sink them. But as a result, both immediately stop. It says the storm and the lake became perfectly calm. The word for calm pictures a tranquility, quietness, stillness. It's like you walk out to a lake early in the morning. It's cold, a little bit foggy. The lake is just like a sheet of glass. It's like a mirror reflection. You know that perfect stillness. That's what the Sea of Galilee looked like at Christ's command. There's this contrast in the Greek, verse 24. Remember it says this was a great storm. The adjective for great in the Greek is megas. We get the word mega from 
And so the, the magnitude of this storm was huge. But verse 26 uses the same adjective for the stillness that resulted, where it says it was perfectly calm. That perfectly is megas. And so just as great as the storm was, the opposite stillness was just as great. This is a miracle of immense power. We can envision how like wind might die down suddenly, naturally, but you never see water stop churning quickly. Like you jump into a pool, the ripples that result, they take a little while to dissipate and go back down. And so even more so, like huge swells of a churning sea have so much energy in them, it would take a long time for a lake to just die down and become perfectly still. But just imagine like a quickly deflating balloon, like all that energy, all all the rage of the waters just kind of melts away. Waves fall and they don't rise again. It's like the sea exhales and just turns into a sheet of glass. This would have been an amazing sight to behold. Even as we just read about it in the scriptures, it, it should capture your amazement. And this all leads us, though, lastly to this, number seven, a frightening truth. A frightening truth, finishing in verse 27. It says, The men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this? that even the winds and the sea obey him. The disciples in response are amazed, that they're stunned. The word we have today in English for this would be awestruck. They've never seen anything like this. This miracle literally put the fear of God into them. This is something Mark makes explicit when he says the disciples became very much afraid. They suddenly realized like the greater source of fear was in the boat with them, not outside. There's something more frightening than the storm, and he's in the boat. It's not that they're now terrified of Jesus. They know he's good. It's not like dread, but they know now what he's capable of. They've seen like with just a word, he can turn water into wine. With just a word, he can cast out demons. With just a word, he can heal the sick. Now with just a word, he can command nature. And it listens to him. Like, what else can he do with just a word? He can save with just a word. He can judge with just a word. They were right to fear him in the sense of reverence and respect. You want to be on his side. The disciples knew Jesus. They knew early on that he was the Christ, the Messiah. But they had an incomplete understanding of what that even meant. They needed to come to a greater awareness of just who this Jesus was. This is a special episode where they take a leap forward in that understanding. As they say in wonder, what kind of a man is this? That even the winds and the sea obey him. Now it's time for their rhetorical question. They recognize like Jesus is a man. But it's becoming more and more clear to them he's not just a man. He's more than a man. I don't know if the disciples were well-versed in Psalm 107, but they would be right to see in Jesus a reflection of God's own image and power. Psalm 107 speaks of how God delivers his people, and it stands out here because in the fourth stanza, it speaks of those who are at trouble at sea, or they're, they're lost at sea. They're in a storm at sea. Listen to Psalm 107, verses 25 through 32. And speaking of God, it says, He spoke and raised up a stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. Speaking of those lost at sea, they reeled and staggered like a drunken man and were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distresses. He caused the storm to be still, so that the waves of the sea were hushed. This is what God does. This is what only God can do. Only God has the power to still the storm. And he does this per his love for his people, to deliver his people who cry out to him. And so we see the response of this psalm. It says in verse 31 of the Psalm 107, it says, Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness 
and for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people. This should be our response to our passage, that we should sit in wonder of God's power and glorify him, but we owe the exact same wonder and glory to the Son, because he is this God come down. And again, the way this passage ends indicates what it's really about. This is about who Jesus really is. And for us, reading the gospel, that's already clear. Matthew's already making that case to us from the beginning. Who is Jesus? Son of David, son of Abraham. He's the virgin-born Messiah. He's Emmanuel. He's God with us. He's the divine Messiah. And this text just further establishes that the point here is to help us come to a greater faith in the greater identity of Jesus. That's what this is about, to help us come to a greater faith in the greater identity of Jesus. Now, I mentioned that I've heard this passage often get turned around and made about us. And you might hear it preached instead as follows, that like, if you just follow Jesus, he will still the storms of your life, right? Storms is a metaphor for all of our troubles. And look, just follow Jesus. He'll calm the storms of conflict in your life, the storms of unemployment, the storms of addiction, the storms of depression, and so on. Basically, the message is follow Jesus. He'll make your problems go away. But that's not the purpose of this passage, and that's not promised by the Lord. It's true he has all power. It's true following him leads you to peace in your soul. Like When you come to great faith in Jesus, you can and should be able to say, no matter the storms of life, it is well with my soul. That's very much true. Jesus does bring us immediate peace. But as we learned last week, don't get the impression that following Jesus is some ticket to a trouble-free life, because it's not. If anything, this passage will be telling us that if you follow Jesus, you should expect storms. Look, right before, verses 19 through 22 from last week, Matthew tells us of two men who want to follow Jesus. But remember, they have an incomplete understanding of discipleship. So he he tells them the cost. Here's what it really means, and costs to follow me. He promises a, a crown, but not before a cross. There's no guarantee of leisure or rest or comfort in this life. Look, verse 20, he says, instead, like the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. And so what do you think that means for those who follow him? It's not a coincidence that right after that passage, Matthew presents Jesus asleep. He has nowhere to lay his head, meaning he has no home. He has no place of refuge or rest. That means as a consequence, he has to catch sleep wherever he can, like an uncomfortable rocking boat. He's got nowhere to lay his head. Verse 22 ends telling us about this other would-be disciple. Jesus says to him, follow me. We don't know what happens to this guy. But then the next verse, verse 23, it tells us about Christ's true disciples. And it says they followed him into the boat. Same word for follow. It's like they, they followed Jesus. These are people who did follow him. They counted the cost. They were committed. They were his disciples. It's almost like Matthew is now giving us an immediate picture of true discipleship. But what did it get them, these disciples who followed Jesus? What, what does it look like to follow one who has nowhere to lay his head? It doesn't look like a trouble-free life. It often looks like a storm. Those who follow Jesus will encounter trials and hardships just like he did, just like he promised to his disciples. And, and so it goes, as we reflected last week, where we're promised on this side of the eternal kingdom is the fellowship of his sufferings, Philippians 3.10. Like there's going to be glory, everlasting joy, freedom from sin and death forevermore, but not until that kingdom. I bring this up just to piggyback on the lesson from last week because it, it just sets our right expectations in following Jesus. When you suffer and you go through, so to speak, storms, There's just no promise that Jesus will calm them all on this side of eternity. Of course, we're always going to pray for that, and you should. 
We will always let our desires be made known to the Lord in submission and confidence. Absolutely. And so you pray, Lord, save me. Take away this difficulty. Lift me from poverty. Don't let our house foreclose. Help me find a job. Heal me from this sickness. Don't let my loved one die. Don't let me die. You keep praying all of that. But it's just not promised on this side of eternity. Jesus certainly has the power to still all these types of storms, but that's just not the road of discipleship he told us to expect. If I can say this, this, this might at first sound discouraging, but actually leads to deepest encouragement. So you have to hear me out. But there will come a day when some storm of life will take your life. Right? Your life will one day be threatened. For most of us, it'll probably be disease, but one day you're likely going to pray, Lord Jesus, I'm perishing, save me. And in essence, you're going to get back the response, no. Like this storm is going to take your life, you will perish. I don't know if this is a wake-up call to you, but this is a fallen world. The first death will come for all of us. We don't like to think about it. Ecclesiastes says it's better to be in a house of mourning than a house of laughter. The wise man takes it to heart. This is the end of every man. The first death will come for all of us. But you see, as Christians, we are not left without hope. We don't suffer like those in the world. They suffer without hope. And also, we don't even need to fear when you realize, like, whom are you following? Who is in the boat with you? Who abides in you? John 15, you know, Christ Jesus. Who is this Jesus? What, what kind of a man is this? Well, he, he's more than a man. He's, he's God. And he is life. Just like Jesus said to Martha before raising Lazarus from the dead, John eleven twenty five, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? You know, it's not like following Jesus is some miserable experience. I mean, despite all the hardships, we actually should be the most joyful, peaceful people on the planet. But you see, our, our peace and joy is not superficial. The peace and joy we have, it, it's not wrapped up in some misguided expectation that following Jesus will make us happy, healthy, wealthy, and wise, or that following Jesus will, is the answer to all of our problems in life. Now, that The real hope we have that is that as we follow this Jesus, whatever storms and trials come, he will one day raise us from the dead. That is the hope. And our souls and even our bodies are secure in him. And so what do we have in Jesus? We have true life everlasting here and hereafter. And so do you believe this? And do you believe in him? Do you know him? And who is he? Who is this Jesus? You have to confess just like Martha after John eleven twenty-seven. 27. She said, yes, Lord, I have believed you are the Christ, the son of the living God, even he who comes into the world. And that right there, that is the real lesson to our passage. Once again, it's about coming to greater faith in the greater identity of Jesus. What kind of a man is this? He's no ordinary man. He is the God man. Son of God, son of man. Speaking of, I had wanted to spend a little more time exploring that title, son of man, from the passage last week. We're still not going to have time to do that. Not to worry, it comes up very soon, at the beginning of chapter 9, this, this title for Jesus, the son of man. I'll just tell you in short, it's not just a title of his humanity and humility. It's a title of his deity and exaltation. It stems from Daniel 7, where it says, One, like a son of man, was presented before the eternal God, the Ancient of Days. Just a little preview, it says this, Daniel seven fourteen. It says, To him, to the Son of Man, was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. His kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. And the point is, the same glory, honor, power, and authority that belongs to the eternal God belongs to the Son of Man. That's Jesus. 
and by his divine authority, with just a word, he can create, he can destroy, he can save, he can judge, he can raise his people from the dead, give them everlasting life. And that's what's really waiting for those who hope in him. Just as the winds and the sea obey Jesus, as sickness, as the demons, as everything in these chapters, we're learning ultimately that even death will obey Jesus. And this is the punchline to all the Gospels. They end with Jesus dying and rising from the dead, the first fruits of the resurrection. And so our ultimate takeaway in response to this is just you need to see Jesus for who he really is. Recognize the greater identity of Jesus and then come to greater faith in him. Be amazed by him, stand in wonder, and you'll realize he is fully worth my life. He's fully worth following. There's one last verbal connection I want you to see in the text to finish, to prove the point. Don't forget what we learned earlier in in this same chapter about the Roman centurion. Back in verse 5, we learned about this Roman centurion. He was a God-fearing Gentile, not even a Jew. And he came to Jesus on behalf of his servant who was paralyzed, but he felt he was, he was too unworthy to have Jesus come under his roof. So he came up to Jesus and said, like, just say the word, he'll be healed. That's, that's all he said. This Gentile had far less revelation to go by, and he didn't have the full picture of who Jesus was. But whether he had seen Jesus or heard about Jesus, like he had a better understanding of Christ's identity than most people. Because he knew that he's not a mere man. He's not just a healer. He's someone greater. He's someone who could heal my paralyzed servant long distance with just a word. Like This guy really believed that, truly believed that, so much so that Jesus marvels at him. You go back to verse 10. It says, when Jesus heard this, Speaking of the centurion's statement, it says he was amazed. And look at that. That word for amazed, it's the exact same word used in our text, verse 27. And so you see this juxtaposition. The disciples, after the storm, they marvel at Jesus. A little bit earlier, we see Jesus marveling at a man. What could possibly amaze Jesus? It was faith, great faith. Again, back to verse 10. It says, now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. And you see another contrast with our passage because in our text, Jesus admonishes his disciples for what? For their little faith. But the centurion, he's marveled at by the Lord for what? The opposite, his great faith. And the key to that great faith was having a greater understanding of the identity of Jesus. And that leads to a greater trust in him. The centurion had that trust. The disciples needed that trust. That trust is what banishes fear in trials, by the way. And as for us now, through the written word, we get to behold the greatest revelation of the identity of Jesus. We should be those who trust him the most because now the scriptures, they're complete. We can see him the most, see exactly who he is. And this is how we are to respond. We're to read this passage, see Jesus as God, be amazed, and then just trust him with a greater faith. When you know who Jesus really is, you cling to him. You don't find that all of your problems go away, but you do find the joy of the Lord. You find a peace that surpasses understanding. You find eternal hope. We said so much last week about how hard discipleship is, but in another sense, it's actually quite easy. Didn't Jesus himself say this in Matthew eleven twenty eight? Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus can indeed quiet your soul like the waters of Galilee. He's paid for our sins. He purchased our redemption. He conquered death. Believe in him. You will find rest for your souls. And then come what may in this life, you will one day even find rest for your resurrected body. It's all about him. Marvel at his greater identity. Let that forge within you greater faith. And then let that faith yield greater peace, joy, hope, and endurance. 
I hope just in seeing a picture of Jesus in mo- this morning, a, a desire springs up within you to just to know him more. I want to know him more. I want to see him because he is what it's all about. Let me leave you with that same desire as it's expressed by Paul in Philippians 3, 8 through 11. You can just listen. Paul expresses his heart. He says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish that I might gain Christ. I may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, and he says, verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. That is our hope as well. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your scriptures in which we see the greatest picture of the glory of God. And it's in Christ. Your Son reveals your nature to us more than any, for he is God come down. And we've seen the veil lifted this morning. And I pray you open our eyes to behold this, the, the greater identity of the Son. We need to know who he is, that we know he's capable of doing what he came to do. And that was to die on the cross, to pay for our sins, to rise from the dead, to secure for us forgiveness, redemption, resurrection, life everlasting. We do believe in this, Jesus. We indeed pray you increase our faith. That can be a dangerous prayer because you use often trials and storms to do so, yet we must. We want to know him. Like Paul's heart, we want to, to deepen our trust in him. We want to learn the fellowship of his sufferings. We aim to be conformed to his death because we know waiting there is uh, resurrection from the dead. We want to attain to his life. All this we receive by your grace gift anyway. Just build our faith. What can we say, Lord? Build our faith that your people might stand firm in him, know him, enjoy him, even tell others about him. We thank you for Christ. We give all glory to him this morning. It is in his name we pray. Amen.